Hello, Vet Folio Voice listeners. So glad to have you with us for this episode with Dr. Adam Rudinsky, sponsored in part by Blue Buffalo. We recorded this podcast live at VMX, and it was so fun to finally be able to talk face-to-face again. Dr. Rudinsky is great. He's a wealth of information on the topic of nutrition and surprisingly passionate about diarrhea. We got together to talk about dietary management for GI disease in dogs and cats. Ever wonder when to reach for a high-fiber diet or how dietary fat content plays into these cases? Well, Dr. Rudinsky does a great job of breaking down the different types of diets and which patient would benefit from each type of diet. Let me tell you a bit more about him and we'll get into it. Dr. Rudinsky is an assistant professor in small animal internal medicine at The Ohio State University. He provides the service with a specialized interest, clinical perspective, and clinically applicable research in gastroenterology, pancreatology, and hepatology. Dr. Rudinsky earned his DBM from The Ohio State University and completed a small animal rotating internship at Purdue University, then a combined residency in internal medicine and master's degree at The Ohio State University. He's now on faculty at Ohio State as a staff internist and research scientist after completing postdoctoral fellowships in mucosal immunology and microbial pathogenesis. His current clinical research interests include GI endocrinology, chronic enteropathies, pancreatic and hepatic disease, mucosal immunology, and the intestinal microbiome as it relates to small animal GI, metabolic, and endocrine disease. He's the recipient of several teaching awards and hospital service awards, and despite being absolutely brilliant, he was super fun to talk to and full of helpful, practical tips for improving patient care. Let's jump in. All right, Dr. Rudinsky joining me today for this podcast. Um, I'm super excited to discuss some of the key takeaways from your VMX 2021 talk. Thank you so much for being with me. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Glad we can have this time to sit down and talk about one of the things I love most. Yes, absolutely. So we're talking about chronic enteropathy in small animals today. And so can you talk about the approach for treating patients with GI signs? I mean, at what point do we pursue a workup versus, um, you know, when is empirical treatment appropriate? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. So in my experience, uh, it's a little bit of a a case-by-case basis, right? So as clinicians, we're always going to have to decide on individual cases on how we proceed through them. So for me, you know, the the blanket easy answer is everyone needs a workup, right? Like, you know, take that human healthcare approach and that provides safety, comprehensiveness, etc. that will make sure we don't miss anything, go down the wrong route. Now, in reality, though, we've all (laughs) recommended expensive workups to clients and uh, often get uh, rebuked, let's say, by those owners. Um, So in reality, we really need to par things down to what's most appropriate for the patient. So in that regard, empirical treatment of chronic enteropathies is pretty much ubiquitous amongst all patients we see, right? So at some point, we need to fix the animal and we have a set list of kind of tools in our toolbox to be able to do that. So as far as the diagnostic workup, like I said, the easiest thing is to say as much as the owner will allow, but, uh, you know, everything's going to be incremental along that pathway. Right. With exactly like you said, the ultimate goal is we got to fix the animal. Exactly. Yeah. 
when we're talking about dietary therapy, what types of considerations should we have in mind when we're picking a diet? I mean, what types of options are out there? Okay, great. Um, so with diet, the uh, key things to remember are one, it's always a good option. Right. So as much as I personally love diarrhea and it's kind of the bulk of my world at the clinic I work at, most owners don't. And when we see a chronic enteropathy efficaciousness rate of like 60% in chronic enteropathies, diet's always a good option. So before I get into the specific question you ask, that's I always like to emphasize that because it's something that is safe you know, animals need to eat regardless. So choosing those dietary options is always a good approach. Now, as far as specific dietary options, I think it's easiest from a clinical standpoint to think in the five broad categories of GI or gastrointestinal-based diets that we have marketed towards us. So those would be easily digestible diets, hydrolyzed diets, limited ingredient diets, fiber-modified diets, and then fat-content-modified diets or low-fat diets. I love that breakdown into the five categories because, you know, without thinking about them that way, I'm going, you know, a lot of these overlap, and how, how are they different? When do I reach for each one? So that those five categories kind of separate them really nicely into what kind of options we have out there. Exactly. And then they also correlate really nicely with what you see in the clinic, right? So I know if I have a protein-losing enteropathy, fat content is important to me, right? I know if I have a dog with colitis, fiber content is important to me. So there's really cer certain key things where it correlates really nicely with pattern recognition and here's what the dog or cat's doing, here's what I need to implement uh, from a therapeutic standpoint. Perfect, perfect. So, um, you know, we kind of talked about uh, that there's a lot of options out there. You know, we all know about the kind of the classic GI diets or, um, you know, maybe that's an assumption on my part, but I would think, you know, we have these classic GI diets. So when we're talking about a first line treatment, are those the kind of diets we should keep in mind or are there different things that we should reach for empirically based on those GI signs? Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's once again, situational. So easily digestible diets are really what we consider those classic long-term, they've been around forever, marketed GI diets. So Blue Buffalo, gastrointestinal support, Purina EN, Hills ID, Royal Canin GI are all going to be in that, that core group. Now, those traditionally have been the mainstay of kind of acute enteropathy management, and they do have their place in chronic enteropathy management as well. But it's, it's kind of niche areas. So the key thing about those diets are they're the easy on the stomach diet, right? So uh, it's highly digestible, meaning the gastrointestinal tract's not gonna have to work as hard. So it's great for support, recovery, et cetera. And then the companies have also made all of those diets and those lines low fat. So when I tend to use those outside of acute enteropathies, it's for fat responsive disease, things like protein losing enteropathies, pancreatic disease, and that's the mainstay really of canine medicine, right? So most of the literature in feline medicine actually shows that fat content's actually not super important for treating those animals. Okay, I have to ask this one for my own knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, it was like hammered into our heads in school with um, Hill's ID specifically. Mm -hmm. They were like, you're reaching for this for your pancreatitis patient. You need to know that this is not a low fat diet. But then, you know, you said a lot of these companies have kind of restricted those in fat. Is it still appropriate to reach? You know, are, are all of these low in fat and appropriate in that kind of a situation? 
It's a really good question, and I hope I don't ramble on too much. <laughs> but um, so first up would be probably in the last seven, eight years, I would say, there was a shift from everyone had their regular easily digestible diet. Then the companies launched their low-fat version of that, right? So there was Hills ID and there was Hills ID low fat. And now what you see is companies have switched over to basically just making low fat, easily digestible diets. And very few people actually use those core traditional ones that were around. So historically, yes, like you wouldn't necessarily want uh, regular easily digestible diets because they wouldn't be fat restricted. But nowadays, like if you get Royal Canin GI low fat, Purina EN low fat, ID low fat, or gastrointestinal support by Blue Buffalo low fat, all of those are going to meet those fat criteria. So it's kind of been a shift in the market from what a easily digestible diet was previously to what it is now. I'm like chuckling over here because I'm just like, at what point did I become out of school long enough to see these shifts <laughs> in things? Like, I feel like I'm I'm still new out here yet. Like you're saying, like there's these market shifts and stuff. And I'm going, have I been out that long? Yeah. Uh, no, I joke about that with uh, students at Ohio all the time because, you know, I they act like I know all this stuff about, and I'm like, yeah, I know a lot about diarrhea. Um, (laughs) But then they ask me questions about like preventative care and other things. And it's amazing how much we, uh, you know, as we focus on different things moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we've kind of talked about the classic GI diets. What considerations would make us not reach for one of those diets and reach for something else? Yeah, so traditionally, when we think of chronic enteropathies, we're looking for two different types of categorical diets. So that would be our hydrolyzed diets and our limited antigen or novel ingredient diet. So as a general rule, unless I'm really stretching for that fat modification, my go-tos for chronic GI disease would be hydrolyzed and novel protein or uh, limited antigen. And the basis behind that is if you take a diet like a hydrolyzed diet, it's actually been processed in a way, right? Hydrolysis is the basis of protein breakdown, fat breakdown, carbohydrate breakdown. So when you hydrolyze a diet, you actually inherently make it more digestible. So we kind of get a two for one with those diets. But with hydrolyzed, we also get the benefit that the actual macromolecules in the diet are broken down to a size that the immune system is not going to be as responsive to it. Right? So when we think of overstimulation of the gut through antigens, whether that be allergic or non-allergic antigenic stimulation, the more we can minimize that, the better for a sensitive gastrointestinal tract. So the hydrolyzed diets kind of give me a two for one bang there, right? So if you take like HF or HA or HP, those sorts of diets, they're really well formulated to give you multiple things that you're looking for in a, a gastrointestinal diet. On the flip side, you kind of do the same thing in terms of antigen minimization, but you do it through limiting your ingredient list when you use something like a novel ingredient diet. So we also get that same benefit. Now, the digestibility profile and those sorts of things are a little bit different and vary from diet to diet on that side. But you still get that real real nice benefit of kind of tightening up the diet and making it a little bit a little bit more predictable for the animal, right? I jokingly said during the lecture the other evening that if you take 10 people out to dinner and you go to some spicy restaurant that's really exciting, seven people are going to have a great night, 
three people are going to end up in the bathroom statistically, right? <laughs> and part of that just comes down to there's nothing wrong with the food. It's just how much variety change can certain gastrointestinal tracts handle versus others. Um, and with those limited antigen novel ingredient diets, what you're basically doing is saying, I'm very predictably giving you the same thing, and you're allowing an animal to acclimate to that process. So those two diets together are really what I like to lean on as my first choice. Now, then if I break it down beyond that, because of some of the inherent characteristics of those diets, like hydrolyzed diets being easily digestible and a little bit lower in fiber, and then novel ingredient diets tending to skew slightly higher in fiber content, I tend to choose hydrolyzed diets for my, like, vomiters, my small bowel diarrheas, those sorts. And I tend to choose novel ingredients more for my like large bowel diarrheas. Now that's personal opinion based on my own experience, but kind of where I try to manipulate those types of diets uh, benefits in my favor. Sure. And specifically talking about like chronic enteropathy cases here and what Correct. we're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be for like your classic, what we used to refer to as just our IBDs, right? Our inflammatory bowel disease. Okay, all these. See, even the terminology is changing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what about duration? How long should we keep our patients on these diets and expect to see a difference? Um, You know, many owners who are dealing with chronic enteropathy pets, uh, you know, they don't really want to wait a whole lot of time to see results in these patients. So what's a reasonable amount of time we should be looking for? Exactly. I mean, the moment Fluffy starts going to the bathroom on the white carpet, it's over. We're now an emergency situation, right? And I I think that's something we as veterinarians like kind of scoff at because we're like, oh, it's diarrhea. It's going to, especially acute diarrhea, right? It'll resolve in a couple days. Why are you so worried? But for the owner, it's a it's Who's a crisis. Been out yeah. every two hours uh-huh. since eight p.m. Exactly. Yeah. Because when people get diarrhea, you go to the bathroom. You don't go to the living room. So uh, hopefully <laughs> not. Hope. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> but so in the in the chronic enteropathy, right? I think it's a slightly different story. But you still have that fatigue from owners, right? Like for four months, my cat's been vomiting, or for four months, my dog's had diarrhea or been straining to defecate. And you know, with how bonded we are to our animals, that becomes really emotionally fatiguing across the board. So you're right. Efficiency, quick responses are going to be uh, super useful. So that's where gastroenterologists beat out the dermatologists in terms of giving good news to the owners. So your typical gastrointestinal response rate will be within two weeks. And actually, if you look at a lot of the literature that's out on response rate, it actually occurs much quicker than that. Like cats, for example, typically resolve vomiting and diarrhea both within a week if they're on a diet trial that they're going to be responsive to. So you can see a really robust uh, trial. One of my poor cats that uh, I had him for 20 years and he was my favorite cat ever. And um, he had a super diet responsive animal. And I, if you, I would give him treats because I emotionally needed to it was a fun (laughs) thing he liked it but then he'd vomit immediately right and then as soon as I'd put him back on his other diet he would resolve immediately so it can be a really robust response that you see now the caveat on that is dogs will be a little bit slower right so they're going to push closer to two weeks for response time and you will have certain animals that take longer than that but what I say with the two-week period is right if I see zero improvement in two weeks it's probably game over, 
right, uh, for that particular dietary approach. However, if you see like 60%, 70% improvement in two weeks, ride that out a little bit because that may still uh, improve, like that animal may still have inflammation or other things that are getting uh, a little bit more under control. The only time we do diet trials that are longer than that, though, as a set protocol is when I suspect an actual food allergy. So another thing we talked about in the lecture was that actually a minority of animals that present with chronic GI signs have food allergy. They more have food intolerance, but if you have that food allergy picture where it's concurrent gastrointestinal signs with dermatologic signs, that's when you're going to want to switch back to those arduous uh, multi-month food trials that Two, owners three, hate. Two, three, four months. Yeah. We're, we're hanging in there. Sure. Exactly. But still probably seeing improvement in the GI signs along the way. Correct. Yeah. It can take a little bit longer, but yeah, you typically would see that. You know, we see so many fewer of them, but in the cases that I see, uh, it's certainly going to be gastrointestinal resolution than dermatologic resolution. All right. So we're at least able to give the owner some good news along exactly. the way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we're fixing some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, what about other types of supplementation, uh, like probiotics, fiber, things like that? When should we be thinking about those types of supplements? It depends on kind of what we're talking about. So if you take like a nutraceutical type or vitamin type approaches, right? The classics that we think of would be folic acid or folate and cobalamin. Those are both water soluble uh, and they're cheap. So in general, maybe you don't have a hundred bucks or 150 bucks to spend on a panel to check those values. And maybe that's not the best thing to spend the money on even if you have it because those are easily supplemented with very, very low risk, and and they're fairly easy, right? So uh, we can get those supplements on board regardless. So I, I tell people not to shirk away from using those. Now, the second big category would be probiotics. And actually a good deal of my research, like kind of the intersection of my research is probiotics and dietary therapies. When you talk about probiotics, No real good data is out there to show that a probiotic is a good sole therapy for most uh, most of the diseases we're we're dealing with. Particularly with chronic neuropathies, the literature is very confusing because it's often used with diet or with other therapies at the same time. So at least right now, I would say it's very uncommon to see a full, robust, singular response to a probiotic. A probiotic, though, can be a really good adjunctive therapy in addition to diet and immunomodulatories and other other techniques like that. So it's certainly something that you I, I like to keep in my kind of toolbox for for that purpose. The other thing is, I, I don't know, have you been to like a probiotic aisle recently? I mean, there's options galore. <laughs> yeah, it's like if your armpits are itchy, there's a probiotic <laughs> for it, right? It's it's really across the board. There's something for everything. And there's a lot of probiotics that, you know, if you take like Purina's Efacium SF strain uh, that they use in Fortiflora, that's a very specific strain. And strain is going to be what I kind of consider if uh, – or if I think of genus, species, and strain, right? If you tell me you want a Canis familiaris as your new pet, right? So you want a dog and you're using genus and species to tell me that. 
if you have a St. Bernard in mind and I bring you a Chihuahua, you're probably going to be like, well, that isn't exactly what I thought, right? Not quite what I and, was picturing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and probiotics are the same, right? Like we can't just say genus and species are all the same. So not all Ephasium probiotics are the same. Uh, so when you use uh, when you use probiotics, you want to stick with reputable companies, ones that you get what you're actually paying for. So there's been literature that shows a lot of probiotics don't say that they have in it. So I usually stick with like the ProViables, the uh, Fortifloras, the VSL3 or the VisBiome, VetBiome products because of the predictable nature of what's in them. And then fiber is probably where I love things the most. So fiber I think is pretty useful across the board, but certainly for those large bowel cases, you want to use uh, a lot of fiber in your chronic enteropathy cases. And so when you're supplementing fiber for these pets, just, you know, Metamucil or is there a certain type of fiber we should be looking for? Or? Yeah, so I like I like mixed solubility, fermentability fiber. So something like Metamucil or psyllium husk is a great option. That's probably my go-to, my first line as well. Um, whether I use an additive like Metamucil or whether I use actual diets that are fortified in fiber. I like the diets better if I can use them, right? So if I can reach for a fiber modified diet, that's going to be my approach. Integrated fiber into the diet tends to have better results when you're looking at fecal score and outcomes afterwards, whereas you can get uh, supplemented fiber that kind of dissociates and causes kind of a weird appearance to the stool. Not pathologic, but potentially alarming for the owner. Because of that, I skew a little bit towards the diet. It's also much easier, particularly with cats, right? Sprinkling Metamucil is highly offensive to a cat's sensibilities uh, on top of their food. So really something that's integrated is going to be a lot easier on that owner to just go with the, the modified diet. However, where I actually use the supplemented Metamucil is really when we're talking about, okay, I really want blue buffalo HF, or I really want, you know, Hills DD for some reason on my dietary choices. And I want fiber into that, right? So the nice part is what I say is I choose fiber, I, I choose the diet based on fiber last because I can supplement that in, right? I can't take fat out. I can't hydrolyze to a diet that's not hydrolyzed, but the fiber is the one that I can change. So... That makes sense. And I love your approach to all of this, you know, going ahead and starting the cobalamin supplementation, adding in the probiotic, you know, doing some diet trials and stuff like that, which I feel like I'm getting from your first response that's ultimately we have to fix the animal. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's the goal. We're head streamlined towards that. So let's say we're doing all of this, we're, we're supplementing and we're just not getting better. The empirical diet trials, diet therapy is not working. What's your approach to a workup in those patients? And I know that's probably a really big answer. So, you know, just kind of the overview of how you approach those patients. Yeah. So the longer the duration of signs, the better or more comfortable I feel, right? So if the animals had diarrhea, vomiting, those sorts of things for a year, you're in a pretty good spot because most of the big, bad, scary things should have been a problem. All right. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I kind of have some comfort uh, with that. So uh, looking at that, a minimum database is always super helpful. When I break that minimum database down, CBC chem, your analysis, the chemistry gives me the most bang for my buck when I'm thinking of concurrent extra gastrointestinal diseases that could be playing a role, right? You're indirectly pank, 
your hepatic uh, markers and your renal markers, right? So some of our big guys there. Now, certainly I liken dogs to have a resting cortisol on board for atypical Addison's, right? We sometimes forget about that, but when we don't have that mineralocorticoid deficiency and no electrolyte abnormalities, we miss the subtleties of an atypical Addisonian. And on the cat side, I like to have a T4, right? That's a if you have that basic blood work, you're in actually a pretty good spot because where you're gonna move after that is into abdominal imaging, right? And there was some interesting work out of Virginia Tech a while ago that showed it's actually a very small percentage of cases that abdominal imaging changes things in chronic GI workups, right? So not to say it's not useful, right? If you're one of the 10 or 15% of dogs where it does change something, it's quite useful. but I think that's a useful statistic because that should tell us in practice if that owner declined an ultrasound or we don't have an ultrasound or those sorts of things, that's not necessarily the end of the road. And um, then your other specific gastrointestinal testing like GI panels, cobalamin folates, PLIs, don't necessarily change how I'm going to manage the animal or I can supplement empirically. So that's kind of like my kind of three tiers that I'm looking at prior to biopsy. And the one thing that I've specifically left off of there because it's so regionally specific and animal specific would be infectious disease testing. So that's not to downplay it, right? But certainly young cat, chronic watery diarrhea, I want tri-trick screened for, right? Parasite screens, all of those things are going to be super useful. You, you work in Missouri, you need to be looking for uh, histoplasmosis, right? So we want to be thinking of what is important in our practice area as well, but because that's more tailor-made, I, I cut it out of my initial uh, rundown there. Sure, do a risk assessment on yeah. your patient first. Mm -hmm. What are, and this, this kind of goes along with that last question, but what are some of the circumstances where one of our, our diet trial may fail? So when diet trials fail, it's one of two big categories for me. Probably, uh, well, let me actually add a third just for the sake of it here. But first is we have to realize that about 40% of animals, it's going to fail, right? But even in those animals, just because a diet doesn't resolve all signs together, it doesn't mean the diet's not doing something. It doesn't mean the diet's not beneficial. So if you have a diet trial that fails, it doesn't mean try something else and take that diet away. To me, it means keep them on that diet because you're still providing stability and add your next therapies. The other two reasons for diet trials to fail, in my opinion, are we don't truly have a chronic neuropathy in the sense of an idiopathic inflammatory bowel disease type chronic neuropathy, right? So irritable bowel syndrome and other types of things can look very similar, but they're not gonna have the same responsiveness with a clinical diet trial. So we always have to have in the back of our head that maybe it isn't a an inflammatory bowel, chronic neuropathy type. Maybe it's something that actually just isn't responding because it's a different disease. And certainly that's gonna be higher on my concern list with more minimal workups, right? And then the last thing that can be really, really challenging is owner compliance, right? Granted, I it's not uh, just another story about my pet. I, one of my, my last German short hair was diabetic for four years. And he was mostly well-controlled except for me taking him to Dairy Queen or other places. <laughs> and I just dealt with him peeing in my kitchen because he liked it. it well, not, not peeing <laughs> in the kitchen, but he so liked happy. Exactly. So we were both on this like driving towards the cliff together, but it was just the reality. And I knew better. 
so we have that same thing, right? Like it, it's super useful to use diet and be strict about it, but it also is fairly hard on an owner to just be like, I'm done with treats or I'm done with, you know, uh, some of these things, chew toys, things that we use for behavioral enrichment can all be very impactful for that bond. So owner fatigue in terms of the dietary restrictions can certainly cause failures. And typically in my experience, most owners are pretty comfortable telling you that or, or being forthright about it. Uh, and sometimes, so it's just not a, um, it's just not an option for those animals. Absolutely. And that kind of leads into my next question here about communicating with owners about diets and diet trials. How do you, how do you talk to owners about, we have to change the diet and, uh, you know, they, they may be really attached to what they're feeding. Yeah. Spot on. They are super attached. It's actually in because I, I do it pretty much every day I'm in the clinic, it's my least favorite conversation to have because of that. Owners have so much attachment to being, like their concept of being a good owner is so directly related to what they feed, right? So when you challenge that, right, it becomes something that's really, really kind of jarring for some of these owners. Typically, I think the way I lead and the way I uh, go into that situation is twofold. We really want to hammer home that it's as simple as dropping food in a bowl to control 60% of these cats and dogs, right? And if we focus on that and you tell the owner that they're not going to have to pill their animals, they're not going to have side effects, they're not going to have those sorts of things if this works, that I think is actually a big push to get people to, people to change, but I do think we also need to be prepared to fight a lot of the misinformation that's out there, right? Like if you go to YouTube and type in dog food or dog nutrition, unfortunately, you don't get reputable information from the big four companies that I want people to go to, like Blue and Royal Canin and Purina and Hills. Instead, you get like a variety of people giving, let's call it, loose opinions on on dietary recommendations. So we're battling a lot of information out there, especially with the how people access their information these days. So you're going to have to combat that. And so also, I think the reps from the food companies can help with that by providing the data that, right, like a lot of these diets are made in dedicated facilities, and there's quality control and all these other things that separate these companies from others. It's kind of unrelated, but one of the veterinary students who works in my lab just did a project looking at pathotypes of E. coli that are in kind of non-traditional dog foods, raw, freeze-dried, those sorts. And when you, we looked at this, and just on a, a global scale, we did a bunch of like Blue Buffalo, Purina Hills, Royal Canin Diets. Not a single one of them had contaminants. And almost every one of the non-traditional diets or kind of boutique brands had some degree of contamination in them. And the problem with that is then we called the companies for data reporting to say, all right, how do you process these? What's your methods? How's your quality control? And most companies outside of those big four would not provide the information or did not do anything at all. So being able to talk from that perspective and say, this is why I'm concerned about these diets, it can be also impactful, I think, for some owners. And some are just going to yell at you. And, uh, <laughs> just accept it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just take your lumps um, in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
That's fair. That's fair. Um, and then can we circle back around to cats real yeah. quick? Um, we talked a little bit about how fat content is not as important in managing cats. Um, but just in general, how are cats different when we're doing dietary management? Yeah. Aside from kind of dropping cats out and focusing on the other four categories, the other big treatment difference when you're looking at chronic gastrointestinal diseases like the chronic neuropathies we're talking about really centers on the fact that cats have maintained a responsiveness rate similar to hydrolyzed and novel protein diets with the easily digestible diets. So you kind of have a whole third kind of realm that you can choose from uh, dietarily with them. So that's probably the biggest kind of like approach difference uh, that we hadn't covered yet. Gotcha. Well, I love doing these podcasts. This is a perfect example as to why, because I just get to sit here and ask you all the questions that I have and I want to know. So <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining me and for going over all of this. I feel like it's just been a wealth of information. Oh, of course. Anytime. Who knew diarrhea could be so much fun, right? I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you so much to Blue Buffalo and to Dr. Radinsky for such a great episode. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the education tab on Vetfolio's webpage. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.